Well, it's 2 o'clock. Actually, it's 2.01, and that means that it's time for Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. This is Pamela Louie, and every time I walk into the studio, I'm always just, I'm always just, like, so excited and inspired by the music that Hank Adelic plays. But this time, when, with a tribute to Jerry Garcia, as some of you probably know, because I've said it before, I'm, I'm an old deadhead. Uh, when I say old, the emphasis is on old. I think I saw my first show in 1980. I, but I did sneak out illegally. I was not a full adult at the time. At any rate, though, I was thinking that since Jerry's birthday was just a few days ago, and uh, in the spirit of keeping the, this going, the the Jerry thing going, I'd continue on with playing some some. Uh, covers of the dead especially the jerry and or the the songs that jerry wrote uh so we're gonna we're gonna kick the set off right now this is a version of broke down palace which hank Adelic played just a few minutes ago but this is with moon alice and the t-sisters it was recorded in 2019 Actually, let's do this again. Let's start it a little bit earlier because that was just sort of like a boom. That was a, that was a rude sensation in my ears. I don't know about yours. So let, let's get uh, let's start at the beginning. Okay, it's going to take just a just a minute or so to go. So while this is while it's cranking up at three o'clock, I am going to be interviewing Tara from Tara Wine Company who is a winemaker, do, a natural winemaker, who's doing great stuff. I've um, been honored for Tara to participate in some of the, the wine fairs I've, I've done myself, and am really, really excited that she will be with us. So uh, that will be at 2 o'clock. So here we go. This is uh, a lead into Broke Down Palace by Moon Alice and the Tea Sisters and the New Chambers Brothers. Uh, this is from 2019. Thank you. 
And if you think that sounded good, just listening to it here on the radio or on your computer, imagine what that sounds like live, which I had the privilege to do in, I think it was August of 2020, so about two years ago. I went up to Terrapin Station with a friend who actually works with Dylan Chambers at the Hay Street Arts Center. And... I did not know what kind of a treat I was in for. I heard of Moon Alice, and I've heard Dylan sing before, so I, and I've loved the Chambers Brothers, so I figured, okay, this will be cool. And it just blew me away. Uh, hearing Lester Chambers and Dylan Chambers, who are part of Moon Alice, and then the, the T-Sisters, and just their harmonies, it was just magical. Uh, I guess when they all play together with the T-Sisters, they're called Full, full Moon Alice. So uh, if you ever have a chance, I definitely would check them out. You are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie for Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. And I was off last week. Uh, sorry, even I need to take some time away. I went down to Santa Barbara, went to some wineries, drank, tasted and drank a lot of really delicious juice. I don't think I've been to Santa Barbara in 10 years. And man, that is a beautiful place. And it's like really not that far from San Francisco. So if you need to, to get away and you can't get that far away, but you want to get far away enough, I highly suggest taking the trek. Uh, lots of folks are making great wine. There's some really good food. And it's just, it's just nice. You have the beach, you have the mountains. Like, I don't know. What else can you ask for? So we're going to keep on doing some more cover songs from The Grateful Dead. Uh, but first we need to do a little... PSAs. Uh, so we'll be back in, in just a quick minute. Support for KXSF FM comes from Dress San Francisco, a fashion boutique located in the heart of the city's Marina District. Dress carries a wide range of contemporary clothing and jewelry designs with collections and styles to fit any occasion, from work to weekend and daytime to nighttime. Dress is located at 2271 Chestnut Street between Scott and Pierce. Shop in-store or online at DressSanFrancisco.com. Thank you for your support of San Francisco Community Radio. Okay, as promised, let's keep it going. With These are various female singers, female-identified uh, singers, musicians, covering some songs by the Grateful Dead. And this is, the first one is not, not just a cover, but it's actually... We, performed by someone who was at one time a member of the Grateful Dead. This is the Donna Jean Gotcha Band doing Crazy Fingers. Deep sea of love 
touch your hair So swift and bright Strange figures of
SSF is seeking volunteers and we welcome your help. We need energetic people with aptitude and interest in music, technology, event coordination, and station operations, even on-air opportunities. We're a San Francisco-based non-commercial radio station broadcasting locally for the Bay Area and beyond, educating students, giving them real radio experience both on the mic and behind the scenes, and providing a platform for local artists with conversation and content that wouldn't otherwise be broadcast. San Francisco Community Radio is a volunteer nonprofit. No paid employees, no strings. Listener donations and local underwriting power our programming on KXSF 102.5 FM. We're an equal opportunity organization. People from all cultures and communities are encouraged to join us. If this sounds like you, please go to our website and click on kxsf.fm backslash contact us. We look forward to hearing from you. And that's right. We are always looking for volunteers. So if you've always wanted to be on radio, let us know. There might be a place for you here at KXSF. You are listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. This is Pamela Louie. And I had an entire set list planned for the 2 to 3 o'clock hour. And then Hank Adelic was, like, was playing tons of dead during his set. And then I got inspired. I was like, oh, I think I'll followed it up with women identified ver- cover versions of some dead songs so we uh, ended off with Courtney Barnett doing new Speedway Boogie and I do play a lot of Courtney Barnett some of you might be thinking why do you always play Courtney Barnett it's because she's so she's like so hella cool I mean really can you think of anyone who is like cooler than Courtney Barnett I can't Anyway, though, we're going to keep on going on with this. And when I got in a few minutes, as I always do, I try to come a little bit early. And, and uh, Hank Adelic and I always, like, you know, have our little chats about music and other stuff, too. And we were trying to remember the name of the Dead cover album that came out, and I think, in 1990. Because I'm pretty sure it was right before I moved to San Francisco. So it would have been, like, 1990, 1991. And Dwight Yoakam did Truckin'. And the Indigo Girls did Uncle John's Band. and But I still cannot remember the name of that album. At any rate, I guess if I really go go into like the deep search of DuckDuckGo, I'm not going to say the G word, uh, I might be able to find it. However, here we are. At least I was able to find the, the Indigo Girls version of Uncle John's Band. And it's actually, it's really, really pretty. I think their voices just, like, are made for the song. And it, I like, it's a gorgeous song, right? And I mean, honestly, I could sing it, which I won't. And you'd probably say, yeah, that's a pretty good song. Well, you might not. But the Indigo Girls, like, yeah, this, they, they definitely do it justice. So here you go. Anymore. All right. Sorry. Slight technical difficulty there. Give us a quick sec. Oh, technology. Okay. Don't you worry anymore Cause when life looks like easy street There is danger at your door Now think this through with me Let me know your mind Oh, I want 
Lucinda Williams with Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, which is an old American folk song. Lots of uh, lots of folks have done it, have covered it, but whenever the dead did it, it was always fun. It would be like Not Fade Away into Going Down the Road and back into Not Fade Away, or like maybe like Sugar Magnolia into Going Down the Road. It was always sort of like a, a late second set song, and that's when everyone was just like jamming and dancing. I'm sure some of you are listening, who are listening. I know some of my friends are, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Those were great days. But uh, the Lucinda Williams version, is a, it's a little different, but it's still magnificent. You are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie for Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. And shortly, I will be joined by Tara from Tarot wine company here in the studio we're going to do a little wine tasting of some of her new releases and and chat about her 
journey as a winemaker. In the meantime, though, we're going to keep things going. This is, we're going to switch gears a little bit. If you were listening to Hank Adelic, you might have heard him play Oh Baby, Didn't No Lie. That is a song that was written by Elizabeth Cotton, but uh, Jerry did a cover of it. Um, and I think that Jerry did it like with the Jerry Garcia band, not with the dead. But that made me think, huh, I really should play that. I should play the original song because it, it's great. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, yeah, here we go. This is Elizabeth Cotton, Oh Babe, It Ain't No Lie.
KXSF is looking for business underwriters to support our station. For a monthly or annual donation, you'll get rotating thank you spots heard on air 24-7 and a prime spot with website link on the KXSF.FM homepage. Support the local arts community and get the word out about your business. Go online now to KXSF.FM slash underwriting. Support for KXSF is provided by Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned cooperative that has been serving San Francisco vegetarian food and providing a model for sustainable living since 1975. Rainbow is located at 1745 Folsom Street. Visit them online at rainbow.coop. KXSF would like to thank Rainbow Grocery for its continued support.
And that's Sean Colvin with Wichita Skyline. A little nod to the people of the great state of Kansas, the great state of Kansas, at least last night. And uh, yeah, Kansas has a, there's a lot of history there. We were, I was talking a little bit about going down the road being an old folk song. And there are lots of folk songs that were written in Kansas. And it definitely, it's, it has a, an entrenched history of populism and and I'm not talking about the the Donald Trump kind of populism I'm talking about the populism that's really about the people so I think all of us here in the Bay Area anyway we might have some notions about where what things are like in other parts of the country but if you really study historically it's not you know it's, it's not like it's there's this clear-cut path and that every part of the country that we think of as being deep red is actually all that deep red so uh, yeah again I guess I'm just going to leave it at that. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie, and I want to let everyone know about a new show that we have on Saturday nights. It's San Francisco, 7 to 10, and we had uh, uh, Brendan from King of Prussia kicked it off this past Saturday, and I have the honor of doing it this coming Saturday night from 7 to 10 o'clock. So I think I'm going to get the disco ball I have at home, bring it in, and... uh, and we'll see what happens from there. So we're, uh, let's see, we have another 10 minutes or so for music. So let's go with what was originally scheduled for the day uh, before I decided to dedicate the rest of the day to Jerry Garcia. Oh, and by the way, just b- before getting into that, so Jerry's birthday was uh, August 1st, which was Monday, and then he passed away August 9th, which will be next Tuesday. Yeah, so of course that means that Hank Adelic and I are going to be playing lots of dead and or, you know, dead, in my case, female-identified versions of, of dead covers next week. Now, I'm probably not going to do that because there aren't that many. But uh, it's kind of amazing to me. I think that that was 27 years ago, and I just remember that day so vividly hearing on KFOG in the morning. I woke up to the news that Jerry Garcia passed away. And I just remember, like, riding my motorcycle up to Golden Gate Park, and there was just this big sort of like memorial and celebration of his life. And, you know, he wasn't just like kind of the de facto like leader of the Grateful Dead. He was also a San Francisco native who was born in the Excelsior and lived in the Bay Area pretty much his entire life. So I know this is that's not necessarily the theme of Fifth Wave Radio, which is supposed to be all about feminism. But, hey, we're, we are more than just... Uh, one of our identities. So I just wanted to give a nod to Jerry. All right, enough of that. Let's keep going on with some music here. This is Coco, Taylor, and Willie Dixon. Tears 
was streaming down from high And these are the things That the little girl said
Yeah. 
And that was Home, Elizabeth Hart. Uh, that was part of Song for Trey. Elizabeth Hart and Trey Warren were the uh, founders of the Psychedelic Ills. And, or the Psychic Ills, excuse me. Trey Warren passed away in 2020. So Elizabeth Hart made this album with some of the other members of the Psychic Ills, um, as well as uh, Hope Sandoval from Mozzie Star in to pay tribute to Trey Warren. Anyway, love that song. Uh, before that was... Hortense Ellis, Just One Look, and we start out with Coco Taylor and Willie Dixon doing Insane Asylum. It is 3 o'clock. You are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco, and this is DJ Pamela Louie for Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking, and I am very excited to have my next guest here. So, Tara, you are on the radio. Hold on. Let me make sure I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Let's try this again. How's that? Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. I can hear you very well. Not just because you're sitting across from me, but because the microphone is actually working. <laughs> okay, so please, Tara, once again, please l let me know how you pronounce your last name because I'd rather you tell me than I mispronounce it. Sounds great. It's pronounced Bajelia. Okay, Bajelia. And so what, like, where, where are your ancestors from? Just to... From Palestine. Okay. Yeah, specifically Ramallah... Um, or Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Oh, wow. Great. And which is an area where there is a very, very old winemaking tradition. Yeah. Uh, I know that, and I don't, I don't know what, what religion your answers are from and, and that and you don't have to answer that question. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of Palestinians who are Christian drink wine and Palestinians who are Muslim, some do drink wine, some don't drink wine, but it's yeah. as far as when we think about wine drinking, the, the oldest areas, I mean, it's, it's talked about in the Bible. And while I personally think a lot of the Bible is, you know, some wonderful stories that never really happened, I, <laughs> I tend to think that the, those about drinking wine probably have some truth to them. <laughs> so anyway, we are, I'm, I'm very pleased to have you here. Uh, and we're, just to let everybody know, we are drinking wine in the studio. I, or I should say, yes, we, we are, are. <laughs> we are tasting wine in the studio. Uh, Tara has some new releases. So before we get into this interview, can you just actually can you tell everyone a little bit about your background uh what made you throw your lot in with winemaking in the first place sure um in my 20s i studied business and finance i'm i'm a native bay area um grew up here in the city and then we moved to san jose and you know just after working a couple of years in in finance and um i traded commodities for a little while i just was kind of grew a little bit uh, unhappy and sort of discouraged with that career choice. I've always loved food. I've always really enjoyed travel. And so as I was looking into other things uh, to do with my life, I came across as some preparation course uh, and just decided to study wine while I figured things out. And after a few months of that, I realized I just really loved wine and it just felt right to me. Um, and I've, and that's, where essentially I kind of made that switch and winemaking came a couple of years after, after that. Okay. So, so what was the interim between making the switch and winemaking? Like what, cause I think a lot of people think that, wow, winemaking is really cool. And we all know people who have other professions, like they yeah. have day jobs that are in completely different fields, but they do make some wine and sometimes sure. it's actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what specifically kept me in winemaking or just wine in general? Well, no, what was the, what was it in between when you decided, okay, this is something I want to do and actually where you, when you made wine, because, um, I, and maybe you did make some wine right off the bat, but what was the process where you said to yourself, okay, I want to make wine. These are the steps I feel I need to follow for myself to, to do that. Well, I would say it started with thinking that uh, working a harvest was going to help me understand wine better so that I could sell it better as a psalm. Um, and then, so the first place I worked in a winery was actually in Argentina. And I wasn't even working in the cellar full time, but I'd go in at night and start taking temperatures and doing punch downs with friends. And that's where I realized I felt much more at home uh, doing physical work and tinkering with tools and things like that. Um, and that was really the, the beginning of that shift with wine. Um, and then I spent four years vintage hopping from place, going from place to place, working internationally. Um, and it, it was sort of just, it was a bit of a progression. I naively thought that I'd learn how to make wine by working a couple harvests. And then I, the more I got involved, the more I realized I didn't know. So about five years into that is when I decided to go back and study winemaking and viticulture um, through a master's program in Europe. Where was that program? It was in Montpellier, France. Oh, wow. That's a, I like that. It's a cool city. It's really cool. Very yeah. ancient uh, mm -hmm. town with aqueducts, and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, yeah, I mean, definitely had some really interesting experiences there. and. Which I don't know it needs to go into here on the radio, but yeah, it is, it's a, a pretty cool town. I think when people think of the south of France, they think of like Provence and they think of, of Nice and Marseille. And yeah, uh, not too many people in this country like really think of Montpellier. Yeah, I don't, I didn't know much about it myself either before, before going there. Yeah. So, so. Where, where did you work in Argentina? Um, Familia Zuccardi. Oh, so that's a pretty big winery. Very, yeah. Very big. Yeah. It's, from what I understand, the third largest winery in Argentina. A after what, like Trapiche, well, and Conciatoro, something like that? Yeah. Or, I don't know, maybe Conciatoro first, Trapiche second. It, yeah. it, it might have changed now, but they call it, they used to call it the Disneyland um, in terms of tourism because they had so many different options set up for tourists and for olive oil production, and you could drive a classic car through the vineyards. It was... It's pretty cool, but, you know, big, big production uh, winemaking, so. Okay, so if you cut your teeth on big production winemaking, and what you're doing now is, is pretty small. I, bet, yes. I, know, I know that in addition to your wine, you also have a, a day job, you know, where you're making wine. But again, that's, that's not, of what I know, it's, it's also not a, it's not a very big facility. No, it's, it's really small. Uh, it's a small family project. We do about 2,500 cases annually. And some custom crush work for clients. Yeah. Yeah, so very small. And to be honest, I think um, smaller scale is more my, more my thing. You know, I like to focus on quality and being able to experiment. Um, and small places, you get to wear a lot of hats and are challenged in a different way, I think, than in larger scale operations. Yeah. So... Well, what was it that you think that you learn, let's say? And sometimes I think what you learn is, is also learning what you don't want to do. Now, and not, not that I want to like totally diss Zuccardi or anything, sure. but that, that's not it. But uh, it, like sometimes it's, it's great because you sort of like you say you want to break the mold, but sometimes you need to know what the mold is before you break it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I, 
I learned that working for many large companies. Um, I just felt a bit put in a box, I think, in environments like that. Oftentimes didn't feel like I could be myself. I felt like it was less about the wine than it was about marketing or budgets and uh, putting out you know, brands that are consistent year in and year out. And I just, I really missed the wine culture that I was exposed to while traveling. I missed that feeling of con- of deep connection with people. Um, when I was in these really large establishments, I just felt like, I hate to say it, but I, I kind of felt like the people were a little different and I just had a hard time connecting with them and sharing what I loved about wine. I just didn't feel like there was that total passion. Um, at the end of the day, like that's what really I had a hard time with. Um, but of course, there's these day to day things in, in the job that just didn't speak to me, didn't yeah. make me feel super motivated. So, yeah, maybe that's because when you have like with big companies, they can hire people who, let's say, are marketing specialists, are finance specialists. Yeah. And so there are people who basically their passion is marketing or finance. And wine is sort of like, yeah, it's kind of cool. I work for a winery, but they don't have, have the same level of passion. Whereas when you work for a smaller company and you're wearing different hats, it's often like the re- your wine is the first reason why you're there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I just didn't really like the feeling of being held back. You know, I'm pretty involved in wine day in and day out. And I love just being able to like be in it, you know completely and feeling really immersed and feeling challenged and and feeling like we're growing and we're all kind of working it towards the same goal i guess yeah all right well we are going to come back in just a second well 30 seconds we need to take a a quick break Uh, i am here with tara and i am going to pronounce your name correctly bajeli bajelia bajelia close yes i got it close okay my (laughs) apologies we'll be right back Support for KXSF comes from the Music (laughs) Store, an independent record store located in San Francisco's West Portal Business District. For more than two decades, the Music Store has featured two floors filled with music and movies, bins and bins of vintage vinyl, new and used CDs and tapes, and rare hard-to-find DVDs and videos. You can pick up a replacement record needle and even learn to play guitar all in the same visit. The Music Store, located at 66 West Portal Avenue. Thanks for supporting KXSF 102.5 FM San Francisco. Okay, we're back. I told you 30 seconds. This is DJ Pamela Louie for Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking on KXSF. And I am here sipping some wine with winemaker Tara Bajelia, who is also the owner, founder, and maybe only employee of Tara Wine Company. Yes, that is correct. So, Tara, before we get into talking about your career, can you talk a little about what's in our glasses right now? Sure. What you're sipping on is the unreleased. Oh, oh wait. Can you... I'm sorry. Your mic wasn't on. Yeah. Yeah. So, what you have in your glass there is is an unreleased wine. It's a 2020 Romato. It's, so, it's Pinot Gris from Bossy Vineyard down in San Luis Obispo County. Um, yeah. So, it's... It's got a little bit of skin contact, which I really love in wines. Okay, so why why do you like skin contact in wines? You just get different textures and mouthfeel, um, different aromatics. I think for Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, that can be a a bit of an underwhelming grape. You get like a lot more aromatics and savoriness, and I love that in in wine. 
So Pinot Gris has always been one of my favorite grapes. Like going back to when I was first introduced to Alsatian Pinot Gris 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember like I had a Zin Homebrecht. I can't remember. It was one of the single vineyards. I want to say Hanks, but I don't think it was that. Okay. I, don't, I don't think it was quite like Grand Cru, but it was pretty, uh, it was tasteless wine. I was like, wow, this is the truth. And, but so much Pinot Gris, people think about Pinot Grigio, Italian Pinot Grigio, which can often be insipid and boring, and usually it's just direct press, so you don't get the color. Yeah. And I think that a lot of wine drinkers don't realize that Pinot Gris, that it actually, like, it, it's like a, the Gris is like this, like, pink skin grape, and that, and if you do allow it to sit on the skins, if it does have some skin fermentation and and even some skin aging, it will change the color, but also the, the skins will give it some texture. Yes, yeah. definitely. And, and, and in, historically, it was made that way in Italy Yeah, for years and years and years until someone exported it as a white wine to the States. Some company whose name shall remain nameless, <laughs> but it starts with an S. Uh, anyway, but... <laughs> Yeah, so no, but you were also mentioning that it's a biodynamic vineyard. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so for those who are listening, can you just talk a little bit about what that means, or at least about what this specific vineyard's, uh, what it means to this vineyard? Okay. Well, I will just preface by saying that biodynamics is this huge uh, topic of conversation, so we're just going to graze the surface here, but you can think of biodynamics as taking organics uh, to the next level, and it's um, a lot more time in the vineyards with the boots on the you know, boots on the ground, thinking about what you're inputting into the soils. Um, so with biodynamic farming, uh, there's a certification company called Demeter here in the States, and you have to be organically farming for three years, I believe, in order to apply for Demeter certification. So biodynamic farmers use specific preparations for um, holistic purposes and for health purposes in the vineyard. Um, for example, you take manure and... Um, cow manure and stuffed cow horns and then buried in the ground and what that does is it starts to decompose um, and then later on you dig that up and you spray it in the vineyards um, and, and this can help you with with many things but overall just just health um, in the vineyard so specifically this vineyard is uh, doing its own prep um, and they do buy some other preparations as well uh, yeah okay yeah cool I mean I think it's it's interesting because there's I see biodynamics is definitely like when I f- first got into the industry when you were not old <laughs> enough to drink uh, and <laughs> I remember going to a seminar that Nicolas Jolie did oh. at, at, in the like the downstairs room at Postrio, a restaurant that no longer exists but was like you know one of the hot places in the 90s Okay, and he was very animated and he it, it was it was incredibly interesting, but no, you know that was the first time that a lot of people had heard about the term biodynamics, and now we hear about it. And also, I think I, I want to make clear to everyone who's listening that what, what you're doing, Tara, is at least what I would call natural wine. I know you add sulfur to your wines. Yes, not, not, I do. Yeah, but and some people would say that adding sulfur is not a natural wine. Uh, there are other people who would say that sulfur as an organic compound is permissible. That you know, since ancient times, people have been adding, you know, sulfate to wines. Right. But uh, there's still a lot of wine that may be from organic vineyards and biodynamic vineyards, but it's not natural. It's inoculated with commercial yeast. Mm-hmm. It has, uh, there are other additives. Sure. It goes through reverse osmosis. It's sterile filtration, all these things that, that 
I, I think that pretty much most people would say do not qualify for a natural wine. Uh, right. So I just want to make that distinction for everyone who is listening that, you know, at a, at a baseline, I think we should be drinking wine that comes from vineyards that are, if, if not certified, at least practicing organic, practicing biodynamic, and preferably going toward a more like regenerative model. Right. But, but that does not mean that it's, it's a natural wine. So that's a good that's a good point to make. Yeah. Yeah. And even some natural wines are made without sourcing. It can kind of go the other way as well. There are natural wines out there that people are calling natural, but that don't always source from organic or, or biodynamic vineyards. And so it's kind of a two part story, I think. Um, yeah. Well, to me, that's not a natural wine. I mean, to me, to me, you're just being a shyster then. You know, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you're, you're just you're kind of full of of uh, a word I'm not allowed to say on the radio, yeah. because if you're not if you're not at, at a minimum doing you know, like getting your grace from practicing organic vineyards is you can't call your wine natural yeah you, and i totally agree with you i'm just yeah. you know I, making I know. yeah <laughs> i know i'm just i'm just clarifying it for everyone out there who's listening yeah uh, yeah it's it's really important and you know for terra wine co i i am choosing to only source from vineyards that are farming that way um, yeah. and it that can be really challenging but it's great when you can find people that are farming that way yeah well so um what are, would you say, as a natural winemaker, what are some of the other challenges that you face? Okay, and I should apologize to everyone. If you hear some noises, that's because there are some trucks going, like, parked and leaving and driving up and down the street <laughs> right here by Light Rail Studios. And if we close the door, it just turns into a sauna. So uh, I think this truck is going to leave us momentarily, and, and we won't have the, the background music. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about, like, what your process is and also when you encounter some of the difficulties that often come with, let's say, using indigenous yeast and, you know, not doing sterile filtration. How, how do you address those issues that, that potentially can arise? Sure. So, um, well, and you asked what my process was. Are you yeah. asking what? The well, winemaking processes? Yeah, the wine, the winemaking process. And within your process, how you can stick to a natural, you know, making wine naturally and still also making wines where, you know, they're not uh, messed up. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the process really starts with trying to spend as much time as I can in the vineyards because that will give me an indication of how healthy the grapes are going to come in at harvest. And that can be really challenging as a small brand um, because some of these vineyards that I source from are three hours away. But the process starts with trying to establish a good relationship with those growers and, and trying to really understand what they use for their sprays um, and trying to just spend time to understand is there botrytis that year is there is there bird damage um things like that coming into the winery can make it very difficult to make it naturally because you can end up with really high levels of va um and and that can really kind of take hold in the wine early on and i think understanding that and kind of being prepared for how what kind of condition the grapes are going to come in is is really key at least for me um if the if the grapes come in super healthy then then the processes they're hand-picked, they come in, I either I'm sorting by hand or I'm foot, I'm foot treading, just depends on really the wine itself. Um, if the grapes look really healthy, I generally will add a little bit of sulfur um, just to kick back bacteria a bit, small dose of sulfur, and then 
you know, it might take a couple days for them to take off depending on the temperature in the cellar. Um, and I just really monitor things very carefully. If things don't look super healthy coming into the vineyard, then I may add a little bit more sulfur. I will keep tasting rigorously. I'm really um, careful about oxygen exposure and things like that. Yep. So you mentioned VA, which is volatile acidity. Mm-hmm. So can you explain for everyone out there who doesn't know <laughs> what volatile acidity is, at, le- at least insofar as winemaking is concerned? Sure. Uh, volatile acidity is caused by a bacteria, and it can taste like vinegar. Um, when this bacteria has things that it can um, consume, it will create uh, volatile acidity, and and that can grow to a point where your wine, um, you could have such high VA levels that you wouldn't be able to sell it in the United States. So it it is what makes wine vinegar, essentially. And so if you don't control that early on, I mean, con- not control because it's a, it's a native... Uh, it's native to the grapes, right? Um, so we don't want to control it to the point that we're totally manipulating what the wine is, but we don't exactly want the wines to spoil either by VA can spoil wine. Yeah. And VA, VA is not necessarily the devil. Uh, like there are a no. lot of re- world famous wines like Chateau Massar from Lebanon, which is famous for having volatile acidity. Right. Uh, but I, And some people are much more sensitive to it than others, and some people don't mind it, some people do. Yeah, I think it's it's a matter of of degree. But if anyone out there has ever smelled a wine and it just straight up smelled like vinegar, uh, that that's a volatile acidity problem. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. And I think in some cases it makes wines really interesting and it just adds a level of complexity. But it's really tough to know how <laughs> how much hold that's going to take on the wine. You know, right? So yeah. my process is just really trying to be focused when those fermentations are taking place, I taste all the time and I'm just really rigorous about oxygen exposure Yeah, and trying to minimize that. So before we move on to talking about the next wine that, that I just poured it out, <laughs> I'll just let everyone know while Tara was talking, I'm the one who poured it. I, I still, still remember how, you know, to pour wine for people, uh, that I was just thinking about the, the Pinot Gris and compared the 2021 to the 2020. Uh-huh. And it seems to me like it has a little bit more weight on it. And it also may be where it is right now as, as compared to like the last time I tried the 2020, but it seems like it has a little, a little bit more weight and, uh, and definitely it, and a little bit more length to it too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes total sense. I think the yields were down in 2021. Um, and so I kind of perceive it as having a bit more structure too, mm-hmm. like a little more tannin and, and weight. Yeah. Yeah. I think the grapes were just smaller. There was less yields out there. So there's probably a little bit more concentration in what you're perceiving in this wine. And in, and at this point, I think it's like really savory. And last year, the 2020, it definitely did better with a little bit more time. Like the, the delicate floral and kind of grapefruit zest really came out after about six months in bottles. So this, this just bottled uh, June 28th. So yeah. it's, it's pretty young. And yeah. What was your first vintage? For Terra Wine Co., it was 2020. 2020, okay. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're probably holding on to, to you know, some bottles of, of each vintage just to see how they go, how, they, <laughs> how they'll age. We're only a couple of years out from the 2020 vintage, so I'm not going to ask you now how you think they're going to age. <laughs> I guess you could speculate. Sure. Yeah. No. I'm trying to hold back some wine. I, I don't make very much. 
Yeah. I don't make very much wine, so I am, you know, consciously trying to hold back wine and not annoy my roommates with a ton of cases around the house. Yeah. Well, uh, it can be challenging when you don't have like a, a full on cellar to store stuff. Where do you make your wine? I make my wine at the Dorset Family Vineyard Winery this year. Yeah. The first vintage was in my friend's garage. Mm-hmm. And the Dorset family, that's that's your day job, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And how is the winemaking that you do for Tara different from what you do for Dorset? Well, I've only worked for the Dorset family. I've only made one vintage for the Dorset family. Um, so in that first vintage, I did inoculate. That's probably the biggest the biggest difference. Um, and, and they use quite... We do incorporate new oak into that wine. Um, and the fruit all comes from the estate and they're just like a lot of Bordeaux varieties. Um, and at the moment I'm not really working with Bordeaux varieties. So yeah, we're, you know, we're, I'm working with them to, to change things stylistically, but you know, it's a, it's a new project for me and I'm learning what they want as a family and learning their vineyards. So that's, it's a bit of a process, but I wouldn't call it natural, but we are, I'm trying to tame alcohols and, and minimize additives. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So we need to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a, a minute here on KXSF. If you're in the music industry and find yourself struggling emotionally, there's now an easy free place to turn for help. Backline is a mental health and wellness resource hub specifically for artists, support crew, and their families. Through Backline's online portal, find a therapist, join a weekly virtual support group, or sign up for yoga or meditation. KXSF is proud to partner with Backline to find help for music industry professionals. Learn more by going online to backline.care. KXSF is anti-hate. San Francisco Community Radio condemns all acts of violence, bigotry, and hate aimed at our marginalized neighbors. We vow to actively combat prejudice by using our unique broadcasting and digital platforms to raise our voices in support of change through collective action. Help us shape a better future. For more information, go to kxsf.fm slash kxsfacts. Okay, we are back. This is DJ Pamela Louie for Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking, and in studio with me, we are doing a wine tasting. We being me and Tara Bugelia, Bugelia uh, of Tara Wine Co. And we just, I just poured out the Muscat. Not poured out, I poured into our glass, not poured it out. I'm about to, I'm about to drink it. But what can you tell me and everyone who's listening and thinking, God, I wish I had a glass of wine in front of me at 3.30 on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, what, can you, what can you tell everybody about this wine? Um, cause I think that's, what's most enticing about this wine for me. I get like a lot of, uh, lemon leaf. It's zippy. It's a little spicy. It's got like a green attribute to it. And, and that's, um, you know, Muscat is a very, very aromatic wine, but I think those other kind of zippy, spicy aromatics are coming from the, the skin contact. So this, what makes this wine, I think really important. Again, we're going to, we're going to take it a step back and go into the vineyards. So this is... 105 year old from what we understand 105 year old muscat vines it's considered to be the oldest muscat in california um it's from ends vineyards in limekiln valley and we only get a really small amount of of fruit from this vineyard so 
um, I decided to keep it on skins for six months. Uh, we de-stemmed it, fermented it on skins, and then half of it I left on skins for six months just to kind of coax a bit more of that uh, beautiful aromatics that muscat has. Yeah. Is this the first time you've made muscat? Uh, yeah. 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 I don't remember you doing it last year, but... No. Um... I was thinking more like working for other people, but yeah, yeah, uh, no. yeah no, I meant for Terra. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. totally. Well, it, yeah, it is really, it's, uh, well, as Muscat is a very aromatic grape, but it's, yeah, there are Muscats out there that sometimes have like a, like a real clear pronounced uh, aromatics. And then sometimes they also have other things going on that can be a little, like, a little too much and unpleasant. I often find that happens when muscat is inoculated too, that it can just be like, it's almost like muscat on steroids. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. can be crazy. Yeah. No, but this is nice. It's tame, but it's really fresh and, and floral. Here, Thanks. I'm, I'm going to taste and I'm going to make that awful sound that people <laughs> make. Hold on. <laughs> Hear that? <laughs> uh, it's great. It has really nice acidity to it. Thanks. Yeah. For skin like contact, that can be really tough. Yeah. 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 And the vines are sold. I mean, they are a bit deprived of nutrients, you know, so the pHs are a little higher. Uh, but I'm glad that that acid comes through. Yeah. I, you know, I try to make wines that are really food friendly and vibrant, make you want to eat, chew on something <laughs> and enjoy it with food, you know? Yeah. So uh, you're doing the Muscat, you do, you're doing the Pinot Gris. And so it, sound, it seems both, which are two varieties that are grown in Alsace, that are, you know, among consider like the you know the noble varieties in Alsace. Yeah, is that a coincidence or 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 do you have an affinity for Alsatian wines? Um, I think it's a coincidence. Okay. Well, well, <laughs> I mean, damn. I love I love Alsatian wines. I love French wine in general. Um, but I think I think it's just a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, finding vineyards to work with that are farming the way I want them to be farmed can be a challenge and so oftentimes the variety takes second place uh to the farming yeah that's true I mean, for all the vineyards that are now organically farmed regeneratively farmed by dynamically farmed in california it's still just a minority you know, most vineyards are you know looted with a variety of pesticides yeah, yeah and for a, a smaller brand that's just getting started when you're buying a ton or two it's you know, you it's competitive and people would rather generally sell to people that are buying more. So oftentimes you just have to take what you can get in order to kind of get get a foot on the vineyard um, and and start that relationship with them. So I would love to say that there was like a, a clear picture of, of in regards to varieties that I'd be working with and showing in this brand. But at this point, it's just more about trying to present the best quality I can. And um, that starts with farming for me so yeah it's it's also hard as a relatively new wine label i know mm -hmm. you're not necessarily that new to winemaking but to having your own label it's it can be hard to get fruit often growers want to yeah they have a certain pride and they want to know that like you're going to make a totally. wine that there it's going to make them proud too yeah. yeah and sometimes they want to taste the wine before you can put their vineyard name on it yeah well yeah so <laughs> I, I, I can understand that yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, but I, I think from these two wines, I, I think the growers should be pretty happy. Thank so, you. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to get back to talking a little bit about your experience traveling around. Uh, sure. You, know, you travel to different countries and continents, which I think is it's wonderful. Uh, but it's also a privilege. Not everyone can do it. And yeah. so 
uh, I was, you know, wondering like, a how you were able to make that work, like mm-hmm. because I think having the uh, having sort of the know how to arrange jobs in other countries, right, is is not all that easy for no. a lot of people. So uh, yeah, maybe if you could just first speak to that a little bit. Well. It's I sort of got introduced to this way of life by when I was in Argentina because I was working with people from from numerous countries. And that that was my first exposure to even this idea of traveling and working abroad. I didn't even know really that people did that. Um, And I just started asking a bunch of questions and learning that you really have to line up your next vintage when you're in when you're in one harvest is when you generally or at least I would try to do the preparation work as to finding jobs um, online. So there's a couple of websites out there like uh, winebusiness.com or or job job sites for like Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, it was a lot of figuring it out on the fly. I don't say I had, I don't think I had anyone like coaching me through it, but the visa process can be extremely difficult to navigate. And there's certain countries that are a little bit easier than, than others. So for American um, citizens. So New Zealand and Australia have uh, working relationships with the U.S. So if you're under 31, 30, it can be fairly easy. You just have to apply online. Um, I just always asked a lot of questions and I always did my best to really network with people that I was working with. And I I mean, naturally, you're working with them for 12, 14 hours a day. You get to know where they came, where they came from. And, and there's sort of this, um, oftentimes, there's people that just were traveling from place to place and they were jumping from Northern to Southern hemisphere. And so by making friends, you, you get a sense of, uh, which wineries are open to hiring, uh, international interns. Um, and you start to know like where the good places are to work. You, you start to ask questions about getting visas and things like that. So in the beginning I was figuring it, figuring it out. And I didn't necessarily, um, land at my top choices in the beginning. Cause sometimes you just have to take jobs that you can get. Um, yeah, that was sort of the process. Yeah. And so also, like, if you work in Argentina or Australia or New Zealand, the harvest, it's basically from often, like, around February, the end of February to through May or so. So it's it's got opposite of our harvest. And I've known a lot of people where they do, they jump, they've gone back and forth between working in the Northern Hemisphere and working mm-hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere just to get that experience, as, yeah. as you were saying. Yeah, that's that's what I did. And I even worked uh, three harvests a couple of years where I went from... Uh, Australia, which is a little bit earlier than Marlborough, New Zealand, so I, in some years I managed to do three. Wow, that that's impressive. That's <laughs> yeah. a lot of work, but fun too. So, what advice would you give to someone who is not able to travel? Who you know, let's say maybe you know they have have a family, or for you know for reasons where they they can't leave, or just financially they can't make it work right but if someone is really interested in learning about winemaking and not necessarily going to school for it sure uh, but they just want to learn about winemaking how would you say say that would be the best way to proceed um i think if you can maybe spend a day or an afternoon and go volunteer at a winery locally in your area i would say that's probably the best way to really get a, a first-hand look at things um, so just try to reach out to people. Everyone, I mean, especially when you're doing it on a small scale, we always need help. It takes a village really to make wine. Volunteer 
go help on the bottling line, go help when we're getting fruit coming in. Um, it's just, I think, the best way to learn, and that's why I personally spent so much time doing it. Um, so I think, and then if you're lucky, you'll get to talk to people that have traveled, and you'll get to kind of just talk and chat and get to learn about their experience and their thoughts about winemaking. I, I think I think it starts from there, even if it's just an afternoon of volunteering. Yeah. Who would you say have been some of the most influential people in, so far in your winemaking career? Uh that's a good question. Um, well, I worked for someone named Julie Cooper at Dumont Winery, and this was back in 2014 and 2015. And uh, she was really influential because she gave me space to grow. She gave me more responsibility. Um, and that made me build my confidence a bit. Um, I felt like I was doing a good job. Um, she was always very reassuring. And then also just watching her run a cell, run a cellar and run it well and be kind and gentle and not be, be, um, you know, she's a beautiful person and watching her run this cellar, um, and give me space to grow is, you know, great inspiration. Um, so she was definitely a mentor, um, early on. Yeah. But there's, you know, working harvest, um, I would say, Everyone was sort of a bit of a mentor, even if it was just five, ten minutes here and there, just, you know, a casual conversation, um, being inspired. But uh, I don't think I had, like, mentorship per se, you know, long term in my career. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about the idea of mentorship over the last few years and how, like, our I, we have this this very sort of top-down and I would say almost patriarchal idea of what mentorship is and I think that it's something we just absolutely we need to like realign our thinking of mentorship and it's where it's not just it's not so much about the ego of I'm going to mentor you or I'm going to a person is going to mentor me and that's it it's like you need to know what a person is about mm -hmm. and it's often a symbiotic relationship and yeah. it's yeah, I hear so much now people in the industry talking about mentorship, especially oh, about mentoring you know, people of color. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's great for people to be thinking in this direction because a few years ago, nobody even was. I mean, not yeah. nobody, but very few people were. You're but right. it, it also, we need to come at this idea of mentorship from less of a white supremacist point of view. Mm -hmm. And I still think that a lot of people in the industry like are unconsciously stuck there right and that's what i guess that's something that just really bothers me when i hear people talking about mentorship it's like okay great but you're not like you know you're not like the great white savior when you're doing this yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know if, if you have noticed that but that's just something that i've I, like i've become really attuned to right and i think kind of going back to what i was saying julie's mentorship was so effective because she, because we just got to know each other and spent time with each other. And it wasn't about her mentoring me. It was about just uh, being a good person and being there for me if I had a question. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't such a formulated uh, mentorship, you know, right. she, I don't right. even think she realized she was doing that for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th there's been plenty of professionals that have been there for me. I shouldn't say I haven't had it, but uh yeah, maybe I was thinking about it in the way that you were referring to, like this formal degree of mentorship. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. 
Well, let's see. We have two more wines to taste here. So why don't we do this? I'm going to read a PSA right now, <laughs> and maybe you can pour the next wine. How does that sound? Let's do it. Okay, let me, let me just drink the rest of this muscat in my glass. There, and for those of you listening, there's not a lot. I'd say maybe there's a half an ounce. So it's not like we're, you know, we're here getting wasted. Not yet, anyway. That, that only will happen at San Francisco. Uh, okay, so... PSA, and this is an, a very important one. This is about water conservation. We are in a historic drought, and I'm just going to ad lib onto this PSA a little bit. I was listening to uh, a show yesterday, I think it was on NPR, or no, or was it the BBC? Anyway, something like that. And they were talking about how in England, that England is now having drought. And a few weeks ago, there were some of the hottest days on record ever in, in the UK. So it's not just a California problem, but it is a California. And it's not just a California problem, but it's a problem for all of our Western neighbors. And we are in, it, there's, it doesn't seem like it's going to get better anytime soon. So from worsening wildfires to the increasing appearance of once shy wildlife roaming urban areas, while much of this is out of our control, there is something we can do. And there, I, you know, in, there's a lot that we could do. Uh, we can conserve water to minimize waste. We can take shorter showers. We can reuse water. I've been trying to, when I, when I uh, clean my salads and I use the salad spinner, I then take the leftover water and I use it to water the plants. So needless to say, my plants are in really good shape right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can learn more about it by going to saveourwater.com. And this message has been brought to you by the folks at KSSFX, uh, which is sort of a, an ad hoc committee that we have going here. Uh, at KFXS, we have, we've started a JEDI committee or all, a Je justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and uh, we're also really trying to do a lot in, in the way of community relations. And part of that, when we think about communities, we need to think about our natural environment. So let, let me ask you this, Tara, as a winemaker, how do you see the, the droughts impacting the work that you do and i know that <laughs> you probably don't know where to start but just especially as as someone who is now going out making your own wine looking for food sources and you know what's how do you see this being a, a problem for you and a, and a problem for you in the future oh there's so many answers to that question that's a loaded question okay. um but to, to try to to try to tackle that, um, it, I see it being a problem for yields uh, for both the growers and myself as a, as a winemaker. I see um, quality decreasing. If, if it's so hot outside and, and you can't try to mitigate that with a little bit of water, if your vines are struggling, then the grapes can become ra raisins and shrivel. Um, that essentially increases alcohol levels um, and turns flavors into one direction that I may not want them to take. So, I mean, I think it's challenging already to find vineyards that are farmed organically and biodynamically. I think it's just going to get even harder unless people start to try to mitigate that in the vineyard. Now, there, you can't do anything about not having enough water, but you can do things to try to make um, the vineyard a little bit more sustainable um, and maybe require less water. So, actually... 
I mean, we we don't have to get into this, but there are vineyards that are starting to farm regeneratively. That's also a bit of a a loaded topic right now. But um, you can do things to try to keep your soils cooler to maintain higher water content. But I think lack of water is just going to make things difficult. Um, And it's already very difficult to do what we do, I think. Yeah. Okay. So so let me ask you about this. You know, now it's kind of trendy to make piquette. And piquette is... The way you make piquette is something that's been done in Europe for a long time. And it's when you take the grapes that are after they've been pressed and used to make wine, take mm-hmm. those grapes, put them in a tank, add water, and right. then it goes through secondary fermentation. And so the, the product is a low alcohol wine. And historically, it's been used to give to vineyard workers. and Yeah. You know, so And it's refreshing. And I t- can completely understand why on the East Coast you know, like old Westminster, Maryland, and why people in Vermont and New York, I, I totally understand why they make piquette because they don't have to worry about rain. Right. But I'm seeing a lot of piquette being made in California. And while sure. I, I do enjoy drinking a lot of it. I don't really know if that's the best idea. I mean, granted, in terms of, of water usage, it's a drop in the bucket. If we want to talk about the wine industry and water yeah. usage, you know, a lot of the big companies are completely wasting water and they're, they're, they're basically siphoning water off of a, uh, from a lot of indigenous and low income communities, and that is a big heated topic. Sure. That I probably should talk about <laughs> on a future show, but you know, <laughs> but at least symbolically, though. Yeah. Yeah, with making piquette, I I don't know. I I'll tell you, and I know you make piquette. Yeah. It's and a I, and I and I love it. I enjoy it, but I do question is like, should we be doing this? Because we're using water to make it, or well, what? Yeah, because it's using it's it's using water when we have a drought to make piquette. Now, I do understand the other sides to it. So it, maybe if you could tell me from the, your point of view as someone who does make piquette, why you think it, it makes sense to, to make it. Well, I think you can make it. I mean, you take I would imagine that the water that you would use to clean certain vessels out um, to clean your press out would probably be more than you're using to actually rehydrate the pumice. So I think it's pretty negligible um, in all sense. You know, if you're, you're getting two, two bottlings um, essentially out of, out of one crop. Uh, so we would have to go out and buy grapes from another grower who would be using water generally to water his vineyards. So there's there's water right there that we're already cutting out. We're we're getting two bottlings out of one. Um, so there's water savings there. You're you're probably cleaning a lot less in the winery because you're doing a secondary fermentation right after you already have the primary fermentation. So you can use uh, tanks or or bins right after the other. You don't have to clean them per se. If you just throw the grapes back in there, um, it's. It's uh, probably pretty mind-blowing with how much water we have to use, actually, to clean in wineries. So I think it's probably a better use of water, if, if you think about it, because we're getting two bottlings out of one. Okay. I'll tell you, I'm going to let that one go, because I know we don't have that much time, and, I, and there are some other things that I want to get to. And yes, I do enjoy drinking your piquette. I know I'm you know, maybe being inconsistent here. Uh, it's not to say I won't drink it, but I, I do question it. Uh, that, I get that. Yeah, I mean, we are. None of us are com- 100% consistent. <laughs> so uh, let's see. You just poured a Barbera for me. So what can you tell me about this wine? So I love this wine, um, and I'm really excited to share it with you. This is from Shake Ridge Vineyard 
um, farmed by Ann Kramer. So it's uh, the vineyards up in Sutter Creek in Amador County. It is organically farmed. Um, it is 100% whole cluster. Barbera in its own has really low pHs. It can have like raging acid. Um, so I decided to ferment this whole cl- 100% whole cluster, which I think really attributes um, to that pop of aromas. Hopefully you're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, it, it is. It's it's really tasty. And it, like Barbera, it's kind of interesting because I, there is so much. I, I'm sure proportionally there's not that much Barbera, but at least of what I see within the natural wine world, et cetera, there, there's quite a bit of Barbera. And it's to the point where I sort of feel like, okay, there's a lot of like, you know, fairly like, it's good. But yeah. uh, th- but this is actually, and I know the Shake Ridge Vineyard. I've been there. And yeah, this is really good. It really does pop. Thanks. Yeah. Did yeah, you- I think that has to do with how she farms. I mean, she does a really great job. This, was, this fruit was stellar. You know, I she's we had there were fires up up in this area and so it was we were pretty scared that there was going to be um fire damage to this fruit and i'm sure it was an extremely stressful year for her last year but um thankfully it's not showing through um yeah yeah did she get any smoke taint no she didn't yeah not that not that i'm aware of we did all the testing yeah wow that's 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 lucky yeah. Yeah. It's it's she's had a, a tough couple of years, I think. So, but I'm really happy with this wine, and I hope that uh, all the work that she does in the vineyards kind of comes through. Yeah. So, the, I mean, that smoke taint is another issue with climate change and the drought. You know, with the drought, the soil is that much is that much drier, which is another reason why we've we've had all these horrific wildfires over the last few years. Yeah. And as a result, that even if a vineyard is spared. If it's in an area, you know, close enough to an area and there is enough wind where, where there have been other fires, the grapes get smoke taint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And we and you don't really know when there is smoke nearby. You don't necessarily know if it's minimal. You don't necessarily know how, how bad it's going to develop. And so you have to do she did small micro ferments. Um, leading up to harvest to see how things developed. And and I kept a really strong close eye on it myself as I was fermenting it and we sent it out to several labs um, so you don't always know how it's going to affect the fruit until you actually start working with it and get it in a tank yeah true well okay we need to take on uh, one final break here we'll be back in just a moment support for KXSF comes from Trista Bernasconi Real Estate Trista is a longtime resident of San Francisco with extensive knowledge of the city and its diverse neighborhoods. Her specialty is helping first-time buyers find and secure the home of their dreams. Learn more by going to TristaBernasconi.com or by visiting the KXSF website and clicking on her logo. Thanks for supporting KXSF San Francisco Community Radio. Okay, we are back here in studio with Tara Bujelia, who is the winemaker, founder of Terra Wine Co., and uh, we're on our fourth wine that we're tasting. And I, I will let everyone know that I have largely been spitting. Is that not right, Tara? That is right. Largely, largely. Uh, so, okay, what are we? What's the next wine? I know you're, you're, I'm putting you to work here. You're like <laughs> serving me. Thank you. 
Yeah, so the next wine is a 2021 Pinot Noir from Santa Clara Valley. Uh, it's from Basson Vineyard. So it's uh, really in close proximity to the Santa Cruz Mountains and uh, Gilroy. Gilroy, okay, great. And how can you just give everyone sort of the a quick synopsis of how you made it, the process? Sure. So everything was um, hand-harvested, brought into the winery on two different days. So I took one, I only got a ton of this Pinot. I did one fermentation as 100% whole cluster. Um, and then the other one was 100% destemmed. I just did gentle punch downs twice a day, pressed the wine, um, and it aged on lees in neutral barrel for about nine months. Great. So and it's, it's tasty too. I mean, I, I will be really honest with you that I feel like I've had so much Pinot Noir in my life and I feel like I'm just so over everyone in California making Pinot Noir because I think the vast majority of them are undrinkable. Uh, <laughs> this is not. This is this is really quite lovely. Thank so, you. Thank you. Uh, if people want to get more information about your wines, uh, what's your URL? It's www.terrahwineco.com. Okay, great. Thank you. So we don't have that much time left. Uh, time does fly here. And, uh, but I did want to ask you about the, you know, you are, you identify as a queer woman of color. I do. In an industry that is largely dominated by cisgender heterosexual white men. (laughs) And I know I feel like. You tell them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I sort of hate just, you know, or I I think I kind of, I'm a little over just like putting this box of like heterosexual cisgender white men, but like that is the reality of it. And I think that especially when you you step away from some of the kind of the fringes of winemaking, like the natural winemaking scene, et cetera, that even, even if there are, let's say women who are in certain positions, they're not, you don't see that many in upper management positions and that the culture is still one that is dominated by a, you know, a patriarchal white culture. Right. So how would you feel that your identities have impacted and shaped you as a wine professional? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just shaped me as a person um, and feeling comfortable and I haven't always felt Obviously, I haven't always felt like I could be myself and be true to the fact that I'm Palestinian, that I'm queer, that I don't always identify with, um, you know, cis white men. Um, So that has certainly impacted me as a person and how comfortable I feel being um, in spaces like that. I don't think it's um, I think it's impacted me as a winemaker in the sense that um, winemaking has actually allowed me to feel a little closer to my roots um, in you know, I'm first generation American. I, I didn't always feel proud of being Palestinian and, but getting involved in wine and, and, um, at its core is, is sort of given me a sense of connection to my, to my culture and my upbringing that I didn't see as it, as a kid growing up. Um, and I have to sort of thank the natural wine, uh, movement for that because I do feel like I can be more comfortable with myself and, and with who I am. And how is that? Like, how, how do you feel that the natural wine movement has provided that for I just can see more people that look like me. I see people asking what my pronouns are, asking where I'm from. They they care about those things. People like yourself are giving me a platform to to 
to speak my truth and to talk about myself. People seem to care. Um, it's just been a little more welcoming. It's been a lot more welcoming, I should say. Yeah. So, I mean, and that in of itself is, is helpful. It's making me feel more comfortable in who I am um, and more proud of who I am. Um, that, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, it, you know, it's hard to, like, just, you know, draw, like, a huge brushstroke because, I mean, I could tell you from own personal experience that there was, there was you know, uh, plenty of misogyny in the natural wine scene, especially in the Bay Area for a while. Yeah. I, that seems to, I think, it's sort of like post-pandemic. There's not as much of it because there are now, and I think this is what's great is that there are there are less cisgender, you know, white men who are in it. A lot of the, the great shops and, and restaurants and bars that have opened up have been opened up by people who are queer and I, I are women identified or non-binary identified right. and, and people of color as well. And I think that that's really made a huge difference that it's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot more diversity than there used to be. So the, that sort of the, the misogyny that defined it five years ago is not necessarily, you know, what defines it right now. Well, thank you for sharing that. Maybe I just didn't, I wasn't exposed to it quite as much. Yeah. Having started this in 2020, you know, it sort of came together at that that time during COVID. Yeah. And I and I guess, you know, the thank you goes to you, people like you who are, you know, who've become part of this the scene too. Uh but, you know, on the uh, and the other side of it is that you know, there definitely are those people and like there are companies, the larger companies that are not natural that are making efforts that I think are making really sincere efforts. Yeah, for sure. At, at not just inclusion, but creating a culture of belonging to people who do not fit, you know, the the identity norm. Yeah, it's been really amazing watching things. It's so refreshing. Um, yeah. I wish it was there when when I was coming up in the wine industry. You know, yeah. um, it, it's it's really remarkable to see all this change that's happened in the last couple of years, um, and it's it's exciting. Yeah, it is. So so we just have a few minutes left. Can you just tell everyone like what? These are four wines that you have coming out this fall. This fall, yes. And and what else are you making right now? Uh, this year, I'm going to be making a ton of stuff. But uh, Sangiovese, Vermentino, I uh, just got a little bit of Falangina, which is really exciting. Um, possibly some Verdejo and Assertico from a very new vineyard that I'm just starting to work with. Wow, where's the Assertico from? It is from Piscinus Ranch in in uh, San Benito County. Wow, yes. that's exciting. So that Assertico is a Greek grape for those who are listening. I mean, it's it's great to hear this. That is, you know, there are all these other varietals, and and I think part of the reason why we're starting to see incrementally grapes that are not, you know, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, Chardonnay, coming up is because of climate change and yes. how and how it's impacting California, which grapes grow can grow well here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I'm thankful to the growers that are willing to try to put things in the ground that um, may be able to do well in climate change. Yeah. So, okay, you have these four coming out. What else do you have available right now for anyone who might be interested in <laughs> saying, hmm, I want to buy get a bottle of my Hintera, and these aren't coming out to the fall, so what can I get right now? You can get Piquette. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and it is, de it is delicious Piquette. <laughs> Thank I'm you. I'm not going to tell people don't buy it. It is it's, it's delicious Piquette, and I do understand your argument. Uh, appreciate know, for, that. Yeah, I have yeah. like six bottles left of a uh, Sangiovese that I made last year as well. But you know, production's really small, and the wines, thankfully, have have sold uh, rather quickly. So these these wines are going to officially drop August fifteenth. 
Um, and I'm doing it a little bit early so I can get them out to you before I get busy with harvest. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay, so August 15th is, is when they're coming out. Uh, and then, yeah, because I've already heard that some people are starting to harvest. So, Yes. Yeah couple yeah. weeks. I expect Sangiovese to come in in about two weeks. So I'm, I'm tr- doing my best to um, share the wines with everyone uh, before I get slammed. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we need to go to a quick... Uh, actually, no, we don't need to go to a quick break. We are, we are almost out of time, which is really sad. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Uh, thank you so much, Tara Bujulia from Tara Wine Co. or Tara Wine Company. As I said, your URL again is... www.tarawineco.com. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And just for to give everyone a preview of some of the shows that are coming up next Wednesday, I will be joined by Meredith Edgar, who is a local mu- musician. She is a singer-singer and a songwriter-songwriter. I had the pleasure of meeting her a few weeks ago and hearing her play, and she will not only be here joining me for a chat but also is going to probably play a song or two and then on the 17th i'll be joined by marcia gagliardi also knows the table hopper marcia is a san francisco based restaurant columnist and freelance writer who is well known well known for her groundbreaking 16 year old e-column which is called the table hopper i remember when she started out and i am thrilled that she will be joining me and then let's see that's the the 23rd i think i will be joined by sophia andari who is the co-founder of the Women's March in San Francisco and was unanimously voted to chair the organization following its inaugural launch in 2017. So definitely have some really great interviews coming up. For all of you listening, this is KXSF LP San Francisco. And as DJ Obsidian is sadly, well, not sadly, not sad for him, sad for us, away for a little while. We're going to go to some automation, uh, but later on we'll, you'll, we'll have some DJs in studio. I know that Brenda from King of Pressure will be here later on, and what else? A barn Dance is also happening later on tonight. So cool. wishing everyone a great rest of your week, and I will catch everyone a week from today. Thanks for listening.